0: The date was February 15, 1947. An Avianca airliner bound for Bogota, Colombia slammed into a 14,000-foot mountain peak. Um, uh, the, the plane was bound for Quito, Ecuador. It slammed into a mountain peak near Bogota, Colombia, crashing into a, a flaming ball of metal in a ravine far, far below. None of the passengers of that DC-4 ever knew what happened. All died instantly, including a young New Yorker named Glenn Chambers. Glenn was on his way to start a new ministry with the voice of the Andes, a lifelong dream that ended suddenly and tragically. Before leaving the Miami airport earlier that morning, Chambers had dashed off a note to his mother from a scrap of paper he found in the terminal. It was a scrap from an old advertisement, apparently. It had a single word on the other side of the page from which he wrote that note. It was the word, why. Between the time that he wrote that letter and his mother received it, of course, Glenn Chambers was killed. So looking up at his mother when she opened that envelope was that, Question, why? Of all of the questions, it is the most searching and the most tormenting. It falls from the lips of people who are struggling with personal problems, problems in their family, problems with friends. And we could list a myriad of issues that folks face that are problematic for them. Why? Why me? Why now? Why this? Why don't you answer? Why don't you do something, God? Don't you care? Why? Nothing prepares us for those times when we find ourselves clinging to the backside of a question mark, asking why. But there is something that can steady us during those unsettling times. It's the realization that those ever-present why questions are answered by the who of the Bible. This morning I'd like for us to take a journey. A journey back in time to another place. And listen, listen as an Old Testament prophet talks about a problem that he faced and how he dealt with that problem and having watched that apply his method to our lives in the 21st century. I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Habakkuk. If you find the Gospel of Matthew, the first book in the New Testament, go back about five books to the left. If you can find Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, go back about four books. We want to focus our attention on Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 12 through chapter 2, verse 1. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 12. Hear now the word of the Lord. O Lord, are you not from everlasting, my God? My Holy One, we will not die. O Lord, you have appointed them to execute judgment. O Rock, you have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent? While the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves. You have made men like a fish in the sea like sea creatures that have no ruler. The wicked foe pulls all of them up with hooks. He catches them in his net, and he gathers them up in his dragnet. And so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and burns incense to his dragnet, for by his net he lives in luxury and enjoys the choicest food is he to keep on emptying his net, destroying nations without mercy? I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me, what answer I am to give to him or to give to, to this complaint. Just take a moment and commit our time to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are thankful for your word. We thank you for this a prophet of Israel who ministered so long ago, but whose message is so relevant to us today. I pray, Father, that as we study this morning, you would be honored and glorified, and we would be instructed. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I heard the tail end of a radio program several weeks ago about a skydiver who missed his landing zone. He jumped into a rather difficult situation. Uh, He landed in a top-secret submarine base. Now, we have dropped, metaphorically speaking, into a difficult situation this morning. As Howard Hendricks, one of my professors at the Dallas Seminary, used to say, we're studying from the clean section of our Bibles. Uh, We don't do our devotions in Habakkuk that often. So it might be wise for us to set the context of this book and figure out where we're at. You'll remember that God made a covenant with Israel. Uh, It's recorded in the book of Exodus. He gave that covenant to Moses. It's called the Mosaic Covenant. It's repeated in Deuteronomy 28 through 30. The gist of the covenant was to bring this nation of Israel into being a united nation to demonstrate that God was holy, to also demonstrate what it meant to live and to worship under God's rule. And if you read Deuteronomy 28, it's clear that God said, if you uh, obey the covenant, you will be blessed. If you disobey the covenant, you will be cursed. Now fast forward with me through uh, the judges to that time when Israel wanted a king like all the other nations around them. God gave them kings. There was Saul, and there was David, and there was Solomon. And then, because of infighting, the nation was split into the northern kingdom of ten tribes and the southern kingdom of two tribes. As you read the accounts in First and Second Kings and Second Chronicles, what you find is that every king of the northern kingdom was evil. None of them followed God. They all disobeyed. They all led the nation into idolatry. And God said, if you'll disobey, I'm going to discipline you. And he did. He, he brought the Assyrians, and the Assyrians defeated Israel and scattered them and caused intermarriage and obliterated the northern kingdom around 722 B.C. The southern kingdom of Judah, on the other hand, had a few good kings, and they lasted a little bit longer, but they too because of their disobedience, would be disciplined by God. The agent God would use would be Nebuchadnezzar and the kingdom of Babylon, who had defeated Assyria some years before. And it's here, just before Nebuchadnezzar comes and Babylon comes in 605, that we pick up the account of Habakkuk. He is looking at his situation, and he's wondering what's going on and what God is doing. Now, in your bulletin, there is an outline, and I know that you may or may not take notes, but it might be wise just to have it so we can follow along. Because Habakkuk is different from any other prophet. Uh, the prophets of Israel were given a word from God for the, for the people. In Habakkuk's case, it's a dialogue between he and God. Look at verse 2. How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Habakkuk looks at the situation in Judah, and he sees that Judah is far from God. And he wonders, why in the world aren't you doing something about it? You said you would, that you disciplined. So the problem for Habakkuk was, how long must and justice triumph. The Lord responds, "Justice is on the way." Look at verse five. Look at the nations and watch. Be utterly amazed, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. I always like to find the humor in the scripture, and this has got to be humorous. Here is Habakkuk. He's saying, "God, why aren't you doing something?" And God says, I'm going to do something. Well, Habakkuk said, well, tell me what you're going to do. And God said, if I tell you, you won't believe me. You can see Habakkuk saying, I'll believe you. Tell me. And he tells him he's going to send Babylon to spank the nation. And Habakkuk said, I don't believe it. I can't believe you would do that. And the reason why. I'm raising up the Babylon's, that ruthless, impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth, seizing dwelling places not their own. They are feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves and promote their own honor. Their horses are swifter than leopards. And it goes on to detail what the Babylonian armies are like. This is a problem for Habakkuk. And so in chapter 1, verse 12, Through chapter 2, verse 1, it's almost as if Habakkuk says, you call this justice? What are you thinking? And oh, by the way, in your bulletin, it says chapter 1, verse 12 through 21. There's only 17 verses in chapter 1, so that should be 2, colon, 1. Boo-boo. So that raises another issue for Habakkuk. He's wondering why the nation of Judah is getting away with all this evil God says, I'm going to take action, but that action presents another problem for Habakkuk. And he states that problem in the paragraph that we just read. But I want you to notice what he does before he responds to God. He kind of takes a step back. And almost in a parenthetical fashion, he affirms his relationship with, With God. He understands that although he's confused, he's buoyed by the character of God and the things that he knows about God. Notice what he says. Twice he uses the name Lord, that is the personal covenant name for God Yahweh or Jehovah. It comes to us out of Exodus chapter 3. God says to Moses, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh. And Moses says, who shall I say sent me? And the answer that God gives is the to be verb in Hebrew, I am, who I am has sent you, Yahweh. It is descriptive of a self-existent God who doesn't need anything outside of himself or anyone outside of himself to accomplish his purposes. Secondly, he uses the name God, which is the word Elohim, the strong one, the majestic creator. It's used in Genesis 1 of the God who created this universe and everything that's in it. Then he says that God is eternal. Are you not from everlasting? The gods of Babylon are idols carved out of wood or stone. There was a time when they did not exist. Habakkuk understands that God is eternal, everlasting. He remembers the things that God has done for the nation in the past. He's confident of what God will do in the future. Then he calls him the Holy One. God is holy. This attribute, this characteristic is seen more in, uh, to describe God than any other in the Scriptures. It, the word means to be separate. God is separate from all other gods of the pagans. This relates to Habakkuk's second problem. You are holy, God. How in the world can you use this unrighteous people as your tool of discipline? Then we see that Habakkuk understands that God is sovereign. You have appointed them to judge. This evil nation just didn't spring up on their own and are not doing their own thing. God is using them for a purpose. He made them what they were. He would take them where he wanted to take them. He would use them as he willed. Habakkuk then shows us that God is faithful. I see that in two places, that word rock, a word that was used to describe God who was a source of security a source of of blessing. And then he says that we will not die. He understood the covenant between God and Israel. Yeah, they were going to get whacked, but they would not cease to exist as a nation. Then finally, God is personal. Habakkuk talks about my God. He's in a relationship, and the nation is in a relationship with a personal God. Babylon may march on the nation. They may defeat them in battle. They may destroy them. He says, we will not die. He says, we will not cease to exist because you've made a covenant with us. I think what Habakkuk is doing in verse 12 is is expressing his confidence in God. And if I could just for a moment... Express what I think his thinking might have been, it might have gone something like this. If God is self existent, that is, if everything depends on God and He doesn't depend on anything outside of Himself, there's no chance that this thing's going to get out of hand, that He'll lose control. God is eternal and He is and always will be then this Babylonian invasion is not some afterthought. This is not his last word as it relates to us as a people. It may seem final to me, but it's not to God. God is holy. He is righteous. He is just. Not a chance this thing is going to turn out for evil. But the final analysis, it will be a good thing. If God is sovereign, then this invasion is not some mere chance. Not something that's just happening. This is God's plan and purpose for us. God is in control, either causing or allowing this to happen. And God is faithful and personal. We are in a covenant relationship with Him, and He has made it clear, if you disobey, I I will discipline you. If you obey, I will bless you. And God has got to be true to Himself. He is disciplining us, He is faithful, but we will not die. At the end of verse 12, He realizes it is for our punishment, for our sin. Habakkuk understood that He and the nation of Israel, the people of Judah, had a relationship with a personal God. Not some distant deity that didn't care. Back it realized that God had made a promise to discipline or to bless. His honor was at stake. His integrity was at stake. He had to do it because Judah was being disobedient. Charles Spurgeon tells the story of an illiterate, illiterate woman, elderly lady, who... Always was teased by her neighbors about her faith and especially about her assurance that God was in control and He would save and He would deliver. One particular day the one of the neighbors was especially annoying, enjoying poking, poking fun at her. And, and ask her what what if he doesn't do what he says he will do? The neighbor said, he will do what he says he will do. He tells me over and over and again of his promises that I am safe in his hands. But what if he doesn't keep his promises? The skeptic asked. The woman said, I might lose my soul. That is true. But he would lose his honor. <laughs> and that's far worse. In the midst of this perplexing problem, Habakkuk went back to the basics, what he knew about God. And and that's the key for each and every one of us as we face life's complexities, our knowledge of God and what that means in our lives. The last time I was with you, we studied John 17, verses 1 through 4 and Verse 3 says, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And at this point, I want you to understand that eternal life is more than an amount of time. It's a, it's a relationship with God. It's a quality of life that knows Him. And out of that knowledge, we live our lives. What does that mean? One of his books, Chuck Swindoll, in talking about the knowledge of God and what it means, lists some things, and he says it so well. Let me just share it with you. The knowledge of God shapes our moral and ethical standards, directly affects our response to pain and hardship, gives us strength when we are tempted, it keeps us faithful and courageous when we're outnumbered, it enhances our worship, prompts our praise, it gives meaning and significance to relationships. Creates a desire to be obedient. Stimulates hope to go on regardless. Enables me to reject what is, uh, know what to reject and what to respect during my time on earth. It is the foundation for everything. Well, I like to think that uh, Habakkuk had his answer, but he doesn't. We see that in the text. He, he's, he, he is confident, but he's confused. God, if you're holy, and I know you are, why then are you using Babylon? The the, the evil people explain that to me. He says that in verse 13. Why in the world would you use them? He goes on to tell God what they're like, as if God doesn't know. You've made made men like fish in the sea, like sea creatures that have no ruler. People are seen like fish, and swimming around, and the, the nation of Babylon Conquers them in their net and, 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 and takes them into captivity. The wicked foe pulls all of them up with hooks. He catches them in his net and gathers them up in his dragnet. Interesting metaphor. The historians tell us that the Babylonians had the habit of taking their captors and putting hooks in their chins and lining them up as they led them off into captivity. That's got to be painful. I, I, I was in grade school when the earth's crust was still hardening, and <laughs> I, I had a, a, a principal, a lady, who when confronted with a disobedient student, by the way, I, I, I never experienced this, but it was a motivation for me. She had long fingernails. I saw the evidence of this, and she would get the students, and she'd get them like that and put that fingernail. Couldn't get away with that today, for sure it had to hurt can you imagine a hook through a chin carting folks off gathers them up in his dragnet and so he rejoices and is glad therefore he sacrifices to his net the word rejoices was a term in the ancient near east that talked about worshiping and what he's saying here is they worship their tools of warfare Is he to keep emptying his net, destroying nations without mercy? Lord, you call this justice? What are you thinking? He's reached the end of his rope. Now in chapter 2, verse 1, he gets away. I will stand by my watch, station myself on the ramparts. Pictures of Habakkuk going off somewhere to a place where soldiers were stationed on the wall of a fortified city to keep a lookout for the enemy. Most theologians believe that he's saying, I said all I'm going to say. I just need to get away and allow God to speak to me. And I believe in these words, there's an attitude of expectancy and an attitude of eagerness. And he's convinced that God's going to answer him and that God is going to say, you don't understand divine things. His dialogue reflects that. Before we make a few closing comments about this little book in chapter 2 and then in chapter 3, what I'd like to do is just take a moment to apply this method that Habakkuk used for our lives today. In your bulletin, there's a buff handout. I think it's buff. I don't know. It's buff. And uh, the sermon title is How to Handle a Problem, and that's the title of that buff handout. What I want to do is take what Habakkuk did in his approach to his problem and put it into some thoughts that we can take away with us this morning. Hopefully, if you're facing a problem, it will help. Maybe not right now, but maybe in the future. So so what did Habakkuk do? First of all, he put away panic. He stopped and he thought about what was going on. It's evident from the prophet's dialogue that he thought about what was going on, and he, he he didn't panic. He thought through things. He thought about God. James, in his letter, admonishes us to let everyone be quick to hear and slow to speak, and slow to often, uh, so slow to anger. Often we do just the opposite. Martin Lord Jones once put it this way: There are times that we talk so fast. We're liable to say things we haven't thought of yet. <laughs> we need to stop and think. We need to reflect on the basic principles. When you begin to think about the problems you're facing, don't focus on the problem. Go back in your life. I call it the principle of sure footing. I grew up in the, We grew up in the north and a lot of snow, and I, this illustration is kind of foreign to texas folk but when it snowed they would shovel the snow and there were patches of ice but there were patches where it was clear and you wanted to be careful you you, you were on the, on the on the clear part so you didn't fall down the problem is the slippery part you need to go back to the times when god met your need when god answered your prayer when you saw god work in your life it seems to be that's what habakkuk did went back to the basic principles he went back to his understanding of who God was, the attributes of God. And he expressed those. Then out of the, that thinking about God, he came to a conclusion. And I cannot stress enough if we're to live this life in this complex society, we've got to understand who God is, because in your young life, if you not face a problem, you will. They will multiply. Thirdly, put to use of the basic principles you know. When faced with this problem, Habakkuk listed the things he knew about God, and then he came to a conclusion: Yes, Judah is sinful. Yes, Babylonia, Babylon is coming. But God is who God is. We will not be destroyed. How does it work in your life? Well, fill in the blank. My problem this morning is, whatever it might be, then what I want you to do is think about God and what you know about Him and how that relates to your problem, to the issue you're facing. God is good. God is loving. He wants the very best to me, for me. Yes, this is problematic, but God is going to use it for good. God is sovereign. There is nothing that comes into my life that does not pass first through the hand of God. God is all-knowing. He knows me inside and out. God is eternal. We live in this little box called time. But tomorrow is coming, and next week is coming, and that's what we know about God. We need to apply to our problem. Finally, and most importantly, if you take time to stop and to think and you've thought about the basic principles and you've put them to use in your life and you're still confused, there's one final step. Put the problem in the hands of the Lord. Put the problem in the hands of the Lord. It seems to me that's what Habakkuk did. In chapter 2, verse 1, I don't understand this. I have confidence, but I'm still confused. I'm going to get away. I'm going to wait expectantly for God to answer. That's what he did in chapter 2, verse 1. But That raises a question, doesn't it? What does it mean to put the problem in the hands of the Lord? Let me make three suggestions. Number one, detach yourself from the problem. Detach yourself from the problem. What does that mean? Number one, stop talking about it. I'm not suggesting that you ought not have a circle of friends who you go to and who you um, have pray with you and for you for this issue. That's good, and that's biblical, and that's what we need to do, but you don't need to be telling everybody what your problem is. You don't need to tweet about it. You don't need to get on Facebook and tell everybody, in the world, what your problem is. If you're going to leave it in the hands of the Lord, do that. Leave it with Him. Secondly, stop grumbling about it. You know what that's like. That's what Israel did. Barbara and I were blessed with four children, and growing up, we got our share of that. It's time to go to bed. Time to do the church. Mm-hmm. The point is, if you're continuously grumbling about your problem, you haven't left it with the Lord. Thirdly, stop worrying about it. Worry is unbelief. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, For this reason I say to you, do not be anxious for your life. You shall eat, or what you should drink, for your body, or what you should put on not life more than food and the body more than clothing. In light of that, jot down to Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 to 7. Finally, stop scheming. If you're going to leave it with the Lord and you've done everything you can do, then leave it with the Lord. Stop trying to help Him with your problem. Allow God to do that. That was Daniel's approach to the problem. He simply prayed. Okay, detach yourself from the problem. But secondly, anticipate an answer. Habakkuk spoke with the Lord and then waited for an answer, and his faith is shown in this prayer. He, he waited for God to provide an answer. He demonstrated confidence through his waiting. The story is told of a cranky individual in a church who, for some unknown reason, was not invited to the annual picnic. And the uh, church staff got wind of it, so they sent a young staff person. They always send a young staff person, never send a pastor or an elder, send some young staff person to give him a personal invitation to come to the picnic. And he did. We want you to come to the picnic. Cranky old guy said, It's too late. I prayed for rain. He had confidence, <laughs> he had confidence, and God would answer his prayer. James also offers sound advice in his little letter when he writes, If you, any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives all men generously and without reproach. It will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without any doubting. And, and that's in the context of a, of a trial. You, you remember the, the words of James? You're going to have trials. You're going to have tests. Count it all joy. <laughs> James okay, says in the midst of those trials, those problems, ask God to give you wisdom. Not so you can get out of it. So you can link arms with God and walk through those issues. So how does God speak to us? He may impress us in our spirit. He may use a brother or sister in Christ. Most often he uses his word. Well, finally, if you're going to leave it with the Lord, persist in your expectation. Those words, are uh, that's implied, and I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me. Don't give up on God. Trust him. Well, the problem, how long, God, are you going to allow me to watch injustice? Verses 1 through 4, Lord responds, justice is on the way. (laughs) Just be patient, it's coming. Because another problem for her back is, wait a minute. How can you use those people? They're unjust and uh, they're unjust. And we're at least somewhat righteous. We're your people. How could you do that? The Lord responds in chapter 2 by saying justice will indeed, indeed prevail in due time. Yes, I'm using them to whack you, to spank you, to discipline you. But because of their evil, they will one, bit, one day be judged as well. Notice uh, chapter 2, verse 2. Then the Lord replied, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end. It will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. It's going to happen. See, he is puffed up, Babylon. He desires, his desires are not upright. Indeed, wine betrays him. He is arrogant never at rest, because he is greedy as, a, as, as the grave and like death is never satisfied. And somebody's sitting out there saying, Wisdom, you missed a phrase. Isn't it interesting? That God, in describing this evil nation that he was going to use as a disciplinary tool, puts a little parenthetical thought. The just, the righteous will live by their faith. Habakkuk, during this time of crisis, you must live by faith, whether you totally understand it or not. This phrase is repeated three times in the New Testament. It's called Martin Luther's passage. The great reformer who was struggling with his relationship with the church And the things that were being piled on. This and a passage out of Romans caused him to realize that one is saved by faith and one lives by faith. Faithfully. So in the midst of this description of this evil people that God was going to use. Live by faith. Then chapter 3. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, on Shiginoth. I like to call that shake, rattle, and roll because it's kind of the meaning of the Hebrew. It was probably some sort of a musical symbol. Here's the prayer. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. Those things that you have done in the past for Israel, make them new, make them fresh in your wrath. Remember mercy. Isn't that what God has always done with Israel? We talked about Moses. We talked about Joshua. We talked about the judges. And over and over and over again, Israel sinned, yet God showed mercy. And Habakkuk is saying, Please do that again. In the remainder of chapter 3, it's almost as if you're reminding God of the things that He'd done in the past. Till we get to verse 16. Verse 16 of chapter 3, I heard and my heart pounded, my lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. <laughs> Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Uh, here's Habakkuk's response to this problem. He states it for us in verse 16. Some of you are here this morning, and you can identify with these words because the problem that you have faced or are facing has caused all sorts of emotional issues in your life. Look at verse 17. Though the fig tree does not bud, there are no grapes on the vines. Though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, Though there are no sheep in the pen, no cattle in the stalls, and remember this is an agrarian society, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in my God, in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the height. Habakkuk is facing a a problem of, of immense proportions. He begins with a sob. He ends with a song. And in between is his spiritual journey. And it ends with this, though everything in the world that I understand goes south, yet I will trust him. May his tribe increase at Melanie Park Church. Nothing, nothing seems to prepare us for times that we find ourselves clinging to the backside of a question mark, asking why. But there is something that can steady us in unsettling times. and That's the realization that that ever-present why question is answered by the who of the Bible. You trust the one you know And you worship the one that you trust. Father, thank you for the little book of Habakkuk. Thank you, Father, for the lessons that it teaches us. Father, I I don't know what each person in this auditorium this morning is facing. Some of us might be bopping along with little or no issues that we're facing. Others are struggling with a personal issue of, relationship or finance or work or health or or a myriad of things my prayer for that person in particular and all of us is that when we face these problematic times in our lives we will follow the example of Habakkuk that we won't panic we'll think about the relationship we have with God and what that means and who God is and what that means. And in that knowledge, we'll find stability. And in that stability, we will walk worthy, showing what it, the world what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for our time of worship this morning. Father, we pray for our elders. We're grateful for the weekend that they've had. We pray for them as they come back and have safe travels. Father, we pray for them as they lead our church family in the coming year. We pray for their families. as They encourage them and support them. We ask your protection and blessing on those who lead and guide us. Lord, dismiss us now with your blessing, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.